Okay. Hope you brought your Bibles with you. You can turn to 1 Samuel. We are about to start Act 2 today of the story of David and Goliath. I'm making you wait to the end, October 30th. Really special day today. I'd rather be nowhere else in the world thankful for my heritage family. A lot of special things going on. Perfect song there, Caleb, at the end. And when everything around me is shaken, that's how we left the Israelites last week. Remember, they were shaken, they were scared, they were dismayed, completely shattered because of this giant champion, Goliath. So we're going to pick up there today. I want to know that some of you are still pretty young, like this group right here. But in 1999, there was a movie. In the 90s, that's all we did for entertainment. Every Friday, okay? It didn't even matter. We are just, whatever movie was coming out. There was no Netflix, no phone. You just went to the movies. And in 1999, I didn't look it up to figure out what month, but a movie called The Sixth Sense came out. Do you remember that movie? Very interesting movie. If you were lucky enough to go to that movie before your friends ruined it for you, you were very surprised at the end. Don't act like you saw it coming, okay? It was one of the biggest plot twists that have ever happened in movie history. Okay, let me just give you a quick rundown. There was this little kid who had serious problems. He saw dead people, and he sought help from a child psychologist, Bruce Willis, big time at that time in the 90s, okay? And and his mom was very distraught over this whole thing. And so Bruce Willis and this little kid, they spend the whole movie together trying to figure out what's going on. And at the end, you find out Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And he's just one of the ghosts that the kid sees. And you're just completely taken aback. I can't believe what happened. And you leave the theater and you're talking about it. And, you know, you can't, there's the unexpected endings, that kind of stuff. We, we can't. We can't quit talking about it. You know, it's one of the reasons we love sports, right? These unexpected endings. It's, it's the underdog that has no chance ever to win, and somehow they win the game on the last play, and you talk about it. It's, it's Doug Flutie's Hail Mary to beat Miami. You know, if, if Miami played Boston College next week, they would show a clip of that from the 1980-whatever because it left you saying, can you believe that happened? I can't. It's the Alabama-Auburn kick six. You know, I'm sorry, Alabama fans. But it is... It is uh, that kind of thing, these unexpected endings. Hold on, let me tear my Wi-Fi off so they'll quit texting me. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons that I love the Bible is because God is always doing these things, these stories, these unexpected ways. You've probably got some of your favorite stories you're thinking of right now. You know, uh, I mean, manna, bread falling out of the sky. It's like angels dream, okay? I mean, that is a very unexpected way that God was providing for his people. Balaam's donkey turning around and talking, saying like, why'd you hit me? You know, that's very, very interesting. The crossing of the Red Sea, very unexpected. No one saw that coming. They thought they were going to die. A few fish and loaves of bread feeds 5,000 people. Not at my house. Okay, we can, we, it takes like a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread a day at my house. But God is a God of the unexpected. Hey, Caleb. He's starting to do that on purpose, walk in in front of everybody, get back on camera one more time. (laughs) Facebook loves you. Back to the sermon. God is the God of the unexpected. Write that down. He is all-powerful, and there is no power in the universe that can match God's power. However, God shows his power in weakness. That's the way he has chosen to act. 
It makes his power even more unbelievable when he acts in weakness. God will defeat every enemy. He will rescue everyone who calls on his name. But he does it through what? Through the, res- through the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. An innocent man killed on a sinner's cross. That's very unexpected. It's incredible. He does it through the preaching of the gospel, which the Bible says is foolishness to the world because it's so unexpected. So even when we are faced with the impossible, with the most terrifying of situations, no matter how big the giant, we are called to put our trust in God. Amen. Even though there's a good chance he's going to completely surprise us in how he moves. We got to be ready for that. Who would have ever thought the answer to all the world's problems would be the death of an innocent man 2000 years ago? And yet that's exactly what it is. Do you believe that? Do you or do you still believe like the world that we should be putting our trust in wealth and power and position and those are the kinds of things that can rescue us? Do we truly believe that the gospel is our answer? You know, over the last handful of weeks, we keep celebrating this, but we're 15 years old now. We've been celebrating a birthday like that family that does it for a whole month. It was 15 years ago that we had our first official worship gathering at Heritage Community Church, September of 2007. And we've been excited. I mean, God has done a lot of neat things. But let me say this. He's also done a lot of unexpected things. He has provided in unexpected ways that we could never have imagined. I would love to share with you every story. I don't have time for that. But if you've come to the Heritage family sometime in the last 15 years and you haven't been here since day one, ask a day oneer. Say, tell me some of these stories. God loves to unexpectedly provide homes at Heritage. I think it's because we love the whole family thing that he was like, hey, families need homes. We're just going to do homes everywhere. So when Brooke and I moved from Tennessee to Florida to help plant Heritage, he said, hey, let's give them a two or three homes to choose from for free. That happened. When we moved Sharon here from Texas to be our first ever children's minister, he goes, she's going to need a home. Let's give her a home for $40,000 less than what she agrees to pay for it. When does that happen? And then at the end, the lady said, you know what? I don't want my furniture either. Just keep everything in the house. Then God said, you know what? I'm going to give a home to the entire Heritage family. I'm going to move them from Wildwood to Fruitland Park and give them 11 acres of food pantry, buildings, and everything debt-free. And the church that was here is going to vote 100% to give it to them. When does that happen? Never. He goes, you know what, just for kicks, I'm going to throw a house in on the property so that Melvin can live in it, that Brian can live in it, that eventually Travis could live in it. He, he, unexpectedly do, he unexpectedly has rescued marriages. He unexpectedly has rescued people from addictions. He unexpectedly has put children, teenagers, adults, and even 90-something-year-old people in that horse trough to say that their life has been changed by Jesus. It has been an unexpected journey for 15 years, and I would not rather be anywhere else, I promise a really great thing. So let's get into Act 2. Now, before we start in chapter 17, where we left, I want to take you back one chapter to chapter 16. I want us to look real quickly at when God had sent Samuel the prophet to Jesse's house in Bethlehem to anoint a new king because he had rejected King Saul. I want us to remember that the choosing of David as the next king was also another unexpected act of God, but it sets the scene for us as we get to chapter 17. I want us to remember this. So look at chapter 16, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab. This is Samuel. Jesse had brought his sons before Samuel. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. This is him. He's big. He's tall. He's strong. He's the oldest. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
the Lord sees not as man sees. I want you to underline that if you didn't do it last week. The Lord sees not as man sees. That's a huge theme for us. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called son number two, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. What's going on? This is unexpected because the Lord told me he was one of your kids. Have you brought them all? Oh, well, there remains the youngest. That word also means smallest. Okay, underline youngest, circle youngest. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed on David from that day forward. Underline that whole sentence. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David was so young. He was so small, even his own father didn't think to bring him in when he marched all his sons across in front of Samuel to see who would be the next king anointed. It didn't even even cross his mind it was so unexpected. He didn't even bother to bring him inside from doing his shepherd chores. But God had already chosen his new king. It was an unexpected choice, but this young, very small David would allow God to show his strength is made perfect in weakness. Do you see this this story, the way this theme keeps unfolding? And God was at work doing something here. He wasn't just, you know, this wasn't just about this time and this, this place, but this was about setting something up, not just the second king of Israel, but a line of kings coming from young, small David culminating a thousand years later in Bethlehem in a young, small baby who would be king forever. You see what God is doing? When we start to understand how God acts, the unexpected becomes expected, and it's not as surprising. So on to act two of our story. We left Saul and the Israelites dismayed, shaken, greatly afraid of the Philistines and their man of the between, Goliath. Act two opens in verse 12. We have an obvious scene change right off the bat, okay? We are picked up from the action in the Valley of Ella and moved about 12 miles east to the little town of Bethlehem, and we are introduced to the next character. 17, verse 12. Now David, teenagers, underline, circle the word David, the name David. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. He's just filling us in, the narrator. We just read about this one chapter before. In the days of Saul, the man, Jesse, was already old and advanced in years. Okay, a few things. David, of course, we've already met him. We know he's the next king. We know it. Everyone else doesn't know it. But we've been reading the story. He's already been anointed by Samuel. He's already been chosen by God to be a king for myself. That's what God said of David. He would be a king for myself. We also know, very importantly, that the Spirit has already rushed upon David from that day forward. So here we are also reminded that David is one of eight sons. We don't know much about David's other brothers. We know that they were passed by for the role of the next king, even though at least some of them looked the part, right? So we're just getting to know this. And we're told that David's father, Jesse, this is kind of interesting, is an old man at this point. Now, 
If you've been studying 1 Samuel ever, if you haven't, you should. It's a great book. You will remember that the sons of old men have not fared so well to this point in the book of 1 Samuel. Do you remember old Eli and his sons? You should read that, chapter 2. Okay, go home today. What about old Samuel and his sons? Not fared so well. That's chapter 8. Read chapter 2 and 8 today. You'll see what I'm talking about. So if we're paying attention, we might be asking ourselves, this is just how I read the Bible. I get very distracted. I'm thinking, y'all wonder if the son of the old man, Jesse, is going to fare any better. Of course he is. We already know the end of the story, even though that's not till October 30th. In verse 13, we find a little bit more detail about David's brothers. Look at verse 13. The three oldest sons of Jesse have followed Saul to battle. So they're soldiers. They're part of Israel's army. And the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the tall, strong one, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. So three of David's brothers were actually soldiers in Saul's army. The oldest was the one with impressive height and stature, but he was not chosen as the next king. But they were over in the valley of Ella, not really fighting. They were all scared, right? But they were with Saul, part of the group on one side of the valley that was shaken and afraid to their boots, and dismayed. Verse 14. We get this again. David was the youngest or smallest. The three eldest followed Saul. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David was not at war with the other Israelite army, okay? He was too small, too young to, to join the army. He was too young or small to even go into the house from his shepherding duties when Samuel the prophet showed up a chapter before. I think it's important to say here that the smallness and the youngness of David compared to his older brothers has been made very apparent so far in the story. Are you seeing that? God's wanting you to see his smallness, his youngness, because he wants you to see that he acts in unexpected ways. We know from chapter 16 that despite his age, despite his stature, David is the one who's been chosen by God to be the next king. All right, so that's our new character here in Act 2, David and his brothers and his dad. But then all of a sudden, for one verse, we've been learning about our new character, our narrator quickly takes us back to the battle scene. Look at verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine, Goliath, came forward and took his stand morning and evening. This is the funniest part of the story to me. This has been going on for 40 days. Now he's doing it twice a day. Remember, Goliath would come out. He would go into the middle of the battlefield between the battle lines and say, Hey, I got a plan. You guys choose someone for yourself. Send them out to fight me. If he wins, we'll be your slaves. If I win, you will be our slaves. Okay? And the Israelites are scared. They're afraid of the fact that he's 9-9, all kinds of protection, sword, shield. And they got nobody on their side raising their hand going, I'll go. Oh, yeah, I'll fight. Nobody. In fact, they're scared, they're shaking, and they turn and run. And this is going on twice a day for 40 days. I mean, can you imagine the Israelites on the other side? Like two of them are like, man, I'm scared. Yeah, me too. I don't know. Someone will fight for us. I don't know. Maybe King Saul. Probably not. He's kind of scared. He's hiding back there. Yeah, I know. All right, you want to go get breakfast now? Okay, I mean, it, what would they do? They're not, nothing else is happening. But they're, they're not fasting. I mean, David is bringing bread here in a minute. So what's going on? And then at night, Goliath would go out again, say the whole thing again. And the Israelites, I'm scared. I know, me too. What are we going to do? Who's going to fight for us? I don't know. You want to get some dinner before bed? Yeah, I got some soup in the tent. You know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I honestly don't understand 
that nothing is changing. Why are the Philistines with Goliath in the front not just charging the scared, shaking Israelites for 40 days? What is happening? Neither one of these armies seem to know like, what war is supposed to be like. But this is what I think. God is at work and he's doing things in his timing and he is dragging this out because he's fixing to bring a very unexpected hero. I think God in his sovereignty is having all of this just kind of drag on. Okay, are you with me? Has anything in your life ever dragged on that you thought God should just end this? Have you ever prayed for God to end something and he doesn't? Back to Bethlehem, verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also... Take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. Very nice of him to throw in a gift for the guy in charge. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Ella fighting the Philistines. Not really because no one was fighting. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. It was a trivial errand. Okay? Something that David had probably done before, the same kind of trip, because he was the kid that stayed home. It doesn't seem that Jesse knew anything about the specifics of the situation with Goliath and stuff like that. He just sent him some bread, sent him some gifts, and said, hey, you know, check on your brothers, let me know how they're doing. Bring a token from them. He just wants to know what's going on. But I think it's important that we understand David was an obedient son. So he did it. Verse 20. David starts his journey. He came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. David gets to the battle scene, and he's just like any young 13 or 14-year-old kid who can't wait to see what's going on, right? In his mind, imagine, he's been traveling 12 miles, and he's like, what am I going to see when I get there? You know, is there going to be war and battle? It's like a little kid getting to see his first war movie on TV or something. He, he can't wait. He throws the food, says, hey, you keep this with the guy in charge, the keeper. And he runs to go find his brothers, runs into the group of soldiers. Interesting, I do think that this is the second time in three verses we saw that David left things he was responsible with with the keeper. Did you catch that? In verse 20, he left the sheep with the keeper before he left. And in verse 22, he left the food that he was responsible for with a keeper. Maybe I'm just crazy, but I think this is a foreshadowing of David laying down things he was responsible for to pick up new kingly responsibilities in what was about to happen. David finds his brothers. Without a doubt, he wants some fighting stories. You know, tell me what's going on. Have you guys... Have you guys, you know, throwing a spear? Have you used a sword? You know, all those questions that your little kid would ask. Verse 23, as he talked with them, they're talking, behold, the champion, Goliath, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines. I don't know if it was morning or evening time. Maybe it's the evening turn. And he spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Get your marker out right now. David heard him. Did you catch that? The only difference from the last 40 days of Goliath two times a day coming out and saying the exact same thing over and over again and everybody running away afraid, but this time 
one difference. David heard him. No one else in the, in the whole place has any clue that this was important at all. We just know it because it's in the text and you're looking at it. David heard him. None of the soldiers, none of David's brothers, King Saul himself did not care at all that this tiny little small young teenage boy had heard Goliath's threat that time. But we know that this is the turning point, don't we? Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. Again, the Israelites saw Goliath. They saw and they were afraid. This time it says they were much afraid. Do you remember the theme for 1 Samuel? Seen or not seen as God sees? So the question is, if these soldiers who are so afraid, if they're seeing Goliath as man sees what does Goliath look like to someone who sees as God sees? Because when we look at Goliath as man sees, we see nine foot nine, completely protected, ready for battle, booming, scary voice. But what does a man who sees as God sees see when he looks at Goliath? We're about to find out. Verse 25. The men of Israel said, they're just talking amongst themselves, the army. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. It's funny, like for 40 days this has been going on. Now all the army, they're starting to talk amongst themselves. And maybe this rumor is even true. Okay, 40 days. Did King Saul draw up a good battle plan? No. Did King Saul volunteer to go fight Goliath because he was, after all, Israel's chosen man? No. Instead, he probably tells his servant, hey, go, go out to the camp and spread this rumor that if somebody will do it, I'll give them all kinds of money, give them my daughter, and take care of their family forever. Let's just see. Let's see if someone's willing to go for it. Okay? And they're talking about it. Little David hears the rumor while he's there in the camp. David has two questions. <laughs> Verse 26. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? What? Who's, he's going to make you rich? How good looking is his daughter? That's the second. <laughs> for who, second question, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. Yeah, it shall be done for the man who kills him. David's two questions. First, uh, I want you to realize these are the first words spoken by David in the Bible. Kind of important. Okay, there you go. Write that down in your thing. I love that these kids take notes. You guys should take that as an example. They're so good at it. His first question was to clarify the rumor. You know, he wanted to know, is this real? I mean, if I go out and whip this guy... I'm going to get a bunch of money and my family's going to be free forever and get a wife? Sounds like a good deal to the 13, 14-year-old shepherd boy, right? And they answered him, yeah, yeah, that's what will be done for whoever kills a Philistine. Second question was showing us something, though. This question shows us that, that something's going on. This sounded nothing like we've heard from King Saul at this point. This sounded like nothing from, that we've heard from any of the soldiers. This sounded like like a question that was coming from a man who was seen differently, doesn't it? 
When he looked out across the valley at this nine foot nine inch giant, he didn't shake. He wasn't dismayed or shattered. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. Who is this? Who is this guy I think he is? He's defying the living, the one true living God. And he's this guy, this Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine who worships dead gods. We know a little bit about the Philistine gods. Remember Dagon from 1 Samuel? You should read about Dagon. Pretty dead God. It is, chapter 5. You've got to read that. We'll come back to that October 30th. But David wasn't afraid. He wasn't shattered or dismayed. And I think we're starting to see the effects of the spirit rushing upon him. Do you understand that? Aren't you a different person now that you've received God's spirit? Don't you see things differently? David was seeing things as God sees them, not as the way man sees them, because the spirit had rushed upon him from that day forward. And things were beginning to change, not only for him, but for those he was fixing to affect. And as far as an answer to his second question... You know, he's saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Yeah, a bunch of nothing from the soldiers on that question. They, did, they, they were probably thinking, why is this little kid not scared? Why is this little kid not afraid of this monster, this giant? I mean, we're adult men and we're soldiers and we're afraid. What's, what's going on here? So they didn't answer. There actually was a response. It came from David's brother, the person who probably knew him best. Listen to what... Verse 28, now Eliab, his eldest brother, the one that was tall and strong, one of the warriors, when he spoke to, he had heard when David spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you even come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? He's just trying to make his little brother feel small. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Anybody in here a younger brother? Younger brothers never get the benefit of the doubt, do they? I'm an older brother, and I made my brother feel pretty bad sometimes. I feel a little bit bad about it now. But there's no way that this David, this little guy, was going to get the benefit of the doubt on that day. I mean, can't you hear Eliab and, and his older brothers? You know, they've been at war for 40 days. They're afraid. They're shaking in their boots. And he's telling him, David, we're at war you couldn't even possibly understand. This guy over here is a giant. We're all afraid. You know nothing. You just want to see fighting going on because you're just a kid. Get out of here with your little sheep. Now, there may have also been some sort of sibling rivalry going on. Just a chapter before, Eliab had been passed up by Samuel, right? He saw Samuel anoint David as the next king. He may or may not have understood what was going on, but he might have had a little bit of jealousy. It kind of reminds me of Joseph and his older brothers from Genesis 12. I mean, uh, 40? I don't have a good memory. Thank you. But something's going on here in Eliab's heart. In fact, there was not any evil in David's heart. What was in David's heart? God's spirit. God's spirit was in David's heart. David had been chosen by God. It was Eliab that knew nothing. He didn't know anything. He was still seen as man sees. David was the one seen as God sees. Little David responds to his brother, verse 29. David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He goes, can I even talk? And so little David, he turned away, verse 30, and, and turned toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. 
We get here to the end of Act 2 of our story, and I know you want me to keep going. I'm not going to. I'm going to make you come back. But, but we can picture this little David like just running from huddle to huddle in the camp there, asking these ridiculous, presumptuous questions like, who is this guy? Will the king really give me all the money if I go fight him? You can imagine all the soldiers annoyed with him, like, where's this kid's parents? Why is he even, what's he talking about? What is he doing? They're annoyed by him. But God didn't see David that way. God has always been a God of the unexpected. No one in the valley that day could have seen what was about to come. No one even would have even dreamed that their rescue was actually going to come from this little kid. But God was at work doing the unexpected, putting into action a sequence of events that we can trace throughout the Old Testament right into the book of Matthew. When another descendant of this David, another obedient son, showed up on the scene and started saying all kinds of things that sounded even more presumptuous than anything David had said that day in the Valley of Ella. He would say things like what Caleb read earlier. If you'll listen to me, and obey my commands, you'll be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And those who knew this man best looked at each other and asked in Matthew 13, verse 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? And they took offense at him. We can't really blame them. I mean, how often have God's unexpected ways caught us off guard? How often have we been offended when God acts differently than we would like him to? Or on a different timetable than we had in mind? But here's what we know, and this is your main idea for the day. When we trust God for the victory, we can expect the unexpected. When we trust God for the victory... We can expect the unexpected. Are you comfortable with that? Or are you still living each day hoping for the comfortable? Let me ask you this. Are you using prayer to try to bend God's, to try to bend God's will to yours? Or are you using prayer to bend your will to God's? Where are you placing your trust? Is it in money? Is it in success? Is it in a certain relationship? At some point along the way, even these good things are going to let us down. Every one of them. But for me, and I hope for you, we will put our faith in the unexpected ways of Jesus. For he has never let us down yet. Amen? Can we pray? Father, you are completely, perfectly faithful. Even though it is very uncomfortable for us sometimes in your surprising, unexpected ways that you act. Father, I pray that you would establish in us a strong faith that would expect the unexpected, that no matter what the situation or what giant we are facing in our life, we would expect the rescue to come from Jesus, the perfect, sinless man that died on the sinner's cross for us in our place the unexpected way that he was raised from the dead three days later. Father, I pray we would never take this gospel story for granted, but that it would be on the center of our hearts and minds and would always be exciting to us because of what you've done and accomplished on our behalf. 
Father, I pray that you would send us out today as people who are trusting in the, in the unexpected God, trusting in miracles, trusting in the impossible to be done, because that's the kind of God you are. We thank you especially for Jesus. Amen. We'll see you guys next week. Don't forget to sign up for the Fall Festival at 3 next week.